If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. First Corinthians chapter 4. The title this morning of the sermon is Examining Christian Ministers. And our key words are, actually I have four of them today, are servant, stewards, trustworthy, and judge. I believe that is on the overhead. First Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 today. And if you are visiting with us uh, for the first time, it is our common practice to preach through books of the Bible, especially in the New Testament, verse by verse, and so this is where we find ourselves as we uh, continue to, to move our way through this rich book of 1 Corinthians, um, and so we are just really getting started. There's much to go ahead, but um, it's been a very profitable study so far, I believe. And so this morning we're going to be looking at the first five verses of chapter 4. I want to read those first. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. May God bless the reading of His Word. There is still here an important issue to be resolved in the Corinthian church. In verses 18 through 23 that we looked at last week, Paul was applying the lessons that he has been teaching on wisdom up to that point. But there's still a specific application that he must bring to bear on this church. You see, sometimes we can get in the trap of just teaching the Bible in a general fashion, but we don't really take it and apply it to specific uh, things and circumstances that are going on in our life. And so Paul here, after teaching... Uh, well, up through, through the first three chapters of the, this book about what true wisdom is and about what uh, uh, human wisdom really is and the differences, and uh, in in specifically in the area of leadership, and after he applied that very thoroughly last week in verses 18 through 23, he has a specific issue he wants to deal with yet with this church. And that issue is, is that some of the people in this church have a bad attitude towards Paul. There is an anti-Paul attitude amongst many in the Corinthian church. And so this is what he has to deal with. This is the specific issue that he still has to deal with. And it's a delicate issue. Paul must assert his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ, but at the same time, he wants the Corinthians to have the right view of the ministry. He wants them to have the right view of uh, of ministers, that they are there to serve the church. And so he wants them to understand that ministers are servants, but at the same time, they have authority as well. Notice in, in chapter 4, verses 18 through 21, towards the end of, the, of chapter 4, he says, Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, 
and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So clearly we see he, he is addressing them. He's, con- he's confronting them with his authority over them uh, and some of the struggles that people were having with that authority. And so, but So he wants to teach them about service, but on the other hand, they must listen to him as one who has authority over them. And so how is he going to do this? How does he do it? In chapter 4, we see here there's a really a change in analogy of what Paul, of what Paul is teaching. Before, in chapter 3, he was describing the church as a, as a field or as a garden. Uh, he was, him and Apollos were planters in that garden. He's also described the church as a building, and we talked about that a few weeks ago, that, uh, that you have different parts of the building, and some of it is built by, by good stuff, and some of it is built by stuff that won't last. And so he's described the churches in, that, in those two ways, but here he changes his, his analogy, his metaphor a little bit. Now he's beginning to describe the church as a household, a household. And so that's what he's going to be confronting them with this morning. As he looks at the church and as he begins to speak to them as a household, he's going to be relaying to them, okay, how do you relate to me in that household? Speaking about Paul as an apostle or a minister of Christ to that particular household. And so the first thing I want to look at is in verse 1 is that how ministers should be regarded. How ministers should be regarded. He says there, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You see, this is really a universal truth. This is how the Corinthians should regard the apostle himself and the other apostles. And this is how Christians for all time should regard ministers to churches. These two ways, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That word servant there, uh, back, we, we've seen this before. Back in chapter 3, Paul was, de- was describing himself as a servant. He was using the Greek word diakados, which is where we get our, our word deacon, uh, to serve. It's an actual a term of service to others. But this is not the word he used here. Here this word is the Greek word huperetes, which really it means an underling. An un- it's really an under rower. Literally it was, if you've ever seen movies where they had these old old um, type ships and they didn't have really sails, they had rows that were sticking out. Uh, and you, you know who was running that row. It wasn't a massive fur, or what do you call it, a, a, a John Deere tractor engine in there uh, turning those, those rows. It was men sitting on benches, you know, uh, uh, rowing those ships. And those were called huperetes. They were the underlings, the under rowers of a ship. They were actually slaves uh, of the ship owner. And so that's the word he's using here. But also it's used in, that's in a much more broad way than that. In other places it's used actually to talk about the officers of the temple who would actually oversee some of the, or, or tend to some of the, uh, the, the issues and things that were going on in the temple were also called huperetes. And so when you put all that in mind, when you see how broadly this word is used, I don't think Paul is really saying here that ministers are actually the ones who row the ship, who are actually the ones who are, who are there rowing the ship and making it go. He's actually, I think, uh, talking about one who manages the affairs of another. And that's really another way of looking at this word. It's a person who manages the, fa- the affairs of another. And that goes with the second thing that, that, um, that Paul says, that ministers should be regarded as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. A steward, we've all heard before, a steward is someone who manages the affairs of another, the manager of a household. 
And so when you put these two together, a clear picture begins to emerge of, of the church as being a household of God. The master is God himself. The head of the church is Jesus. Paul and Apollos and ministers like them are stewards of that household. They're the underlings of the master, the one who is overseeing the affairs of the household. They work for the master of the house. And what do they do? They manage the mysteries of God. He says, uh, we are regarded as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. They oversee the mysteries that the master has revealed for the church. And that's what we see clearly in the New Testament. It's talking about the mysteries of God. It's not just some, some phantom mystical thing that people get a, a light bulb goes off in their, eye, in their mind one day and they're, okay, I've got something new from God. No, the mysteries of God is really the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what the, the Old Testament saints struggled to see. Uh, they foretold it and the prophets foretold it, but then in, when, when the days come and, and, and as the New Testament is beginning to reveal, that is the mysteries of God that he's talking about. And those are what these ministers are called to do. They are called to oversee uh, and steward these mysteries, steward the truth of God. And this is a really a vital point because the ministers are responsible to oversee the revelations that the master has for his household. Because remember, the household is the household of God. It is God's household. He's the master. And he's giving revelations to that household. He's given us this uh, as, our, as our guide. And so the, the ministers are called to be a steward of that. Uh, so what this means is that even though the stewards are servants to the people, we serve the people in the, in the sense of we're, we're, we're here for your service. We're here to give you the mysteries of God, to steward those, to oversee those, to bring those to you. Even though the, we are servants of the people, the people are not their masters. The people are not the masters. Jesus Christ is the master. God the Father is the master of His household. Ministers serve the people with the Word of God, but they do so on behalf of their master. And so it's almost like we're, we're waiters in a sense, where we, we've got the tray on our hand and, and the, the master cook has, given, has cooked this delicious meal because the people out there are, have ordered that meal or they need that meal. And all, our, all their job is just to make sure it gets to the table without dropping it on the floor or without having some foreign matter come into it. And so in that sense, we are stewarding the mysteries of God. We are taking the revelation that God has given His church and we're bringing it to the people. And so in that sense, ministers serve the people. They serve the people on behalf of the Master. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4 says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. We're not here to please men. We're here to please God who tests our hearts. Our hearts are laid bare before Him as we serve Him with the mysteries of God. As we're serving the church on behalf of Him, our hearts are laid bare before Him. And so we're not here to please men in that service. We're here to please the God who sees our hearts. 2 Corinthians 2.17 says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's Word, but as men of sincerity. As commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We've been commissioned by God, called by God. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And then Galatians 1.10 says, for, I, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I to, trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so you see very clearly in there 
the, the tension in there for the minister is that even though we are here to serve the people, even though we're here to serve the members of the household of God, we are not doing it necessarily because they are our bosses. We're doing that because we work for God Himself. We are His we are his stewards of his mysteries, and we are the ones who are bringing that. And so we don't do that to please men. We're not peddlers. Um, we're doing it on behalf of God because we've been commissioned by God to bring the stewards and the mysteries of God to the church. And so this is what Paul is setting out very clearly as we begin, is that as he's beginning to confront these Corinthians, these people who have problems with him or struggling with him, he's telling them, look, this is how you should look at me. This is how you should regard me. I'm a servant of Christ. I serve you by serving Christ. But I'm also a steward of the mysteries of God. That's how we're to be regarded. We're to be regarded as servants of Christ and house managers of the household of God. And then he goes on to say there in verse, in verse 2, how should we think about this? What is the requirement of a minister? Verse 2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. It is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. So how do we measure ministers? That's a good question, right? That's a question that we all have. How do we measure our ministers? How do we measure pastors? Clearly, I think he says right here, a steward, which is what we just looked at earlier, must be found trustworthy. That's the, uh, uh, the same as being faithful. Uh, ministers are servants of Christ and stewards of God's mystery, so the requirement on them is are they being faithful to that task? Are they being faithful by serving Christ by being a steward of the mysteries of God? Are they bringing the revelation of God to His household? That is the the requirement here that Paul clearly says. They must be faithful to this stewardship that has been given to them by God. So what does this look like? What does it mean to be faithful? Because the Scriptures talk a lot about faithfulness and and trustworthiness, but in, as it pertains to the minister, how does that look like as, as we're being faithful to bring the mysteries of God? Well, I think there's a few things that come to mind. The first thing is that you, we handle God's Word reverently. This is a sacred book. We, were, we have been commissioned by the God of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Father of Jesus Christ, This is a reverential job. This is a reverential task that we must do as we we steward these mysteries of God, as as we bring the truth of God to the church. We do it reverently. This is not something that just men came up, holy men of God who were moved by the Holy Spirit put these words down on paper over thousands of years. And so it is a reverential task we are bringing because these are the words of God Himself to the church. I think the next thing we see is that as we that to be faithful means to handle God's word accurately. Second Timothy chapter two verse fifteen says, "Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, rightly handling the word of truth." So we we must do this accurately. We can't just get up and say, okay, this is what it means to me. This is what it means to you. And and we're going to put all that together and come up with our own understanding of what the Word of God says for us in life. No, the Word of God has been spoken clearly by God Himself. And so we must study it to to show ourselves approved, 
rightly handling the word of truth. That was Paul's instructions to his young protege, Timothy, as he was beginning his pastorate. The main thing you must be about is rightly studying the word of God and rightly handling it, dividing the word of truth so that you can apply it correctly. And so we must be handling it accurately. Also, we must handle God's word submissively. We have been entrusted to deliver His message and His message alone. If it's partly His message and partly my message or partly someone else's message, then I'm not being submissive to His lordship, His, His Him being the master of the household. I have nothing to bring to you this morning. Nothing. All I can, all I can do is stand here before you this morning and bring what He has given us what the master of the house has given us. And so we submit to that. We handle God's word courageously. Acts chapter 20, verses 20 uh, and 26 and 27 says, when Paul was meeting with the Ephesian elders at, at Miletus as he was traveling through, this was going to be the last time that he met with them and they met him at the ports. And he says, he's reminding them, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. And in verse 26 and 27, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring you to you the whole counsel of God. And so Paul, in reminding them, as he, in his last words to these brothers, he was reminding them that he had been there, he had been courageous, not because of courage within him, but because of the grace of God in his life. He knew that the only thing that was going to protect these men from ravenous wolves, which he, which he talked about in this same context, was the Word of God. He had not shrunk back to declare to them everything that they needed, the whole counsel of God. From Genesis to Revelation, everything we come to is God's revelation to us and it has an importance to us. And so we must be courageous in proclaiming the Word of God, the whole counsel of God. Another way that ministers must be faithful is that we handle God's Word dependently. Isaiah 55.11 says, So shall my Word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it out. That's our prayer every week when we stand before you is that God would take the words from our mouths as they go out and accomplish great with it not because of our great oratory, but because it is the power of God in His words. This is the Word of God. It has great power to do great things. And God, when it goes out, it accomplishes exactly what it, God has for it to do. For some people, it encourages. For some people, it rebukes. For some people, it brings joy. For some people, it condemns. And all that's going on at the same time. And that's God the Spirit taking His Word and sending it out and accomplishing what He would have it to do. And so we depend on that. Without the Holy Spirit taking these words, and we're wasting, I am wasting my time with you this morning, and you are wasting your time listening to me. We must depend on the Holy Spirit of God to take His Word and accomplish what He has for it. We must handle also God's Word consistently. Paul also writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He's setting this young pastor up, getting him ready to say, Don't give up on what's important. It is the, preach the, the preaching of the word of God. That is what you're about. You must be consistent in that in season and out of season. When it's 
when it's received by the people, when it's rejected by the people, when the people love you, when they hate you, when it's when it's when it when it's when it's received and when it's not. You can't just pick and choose. Okay, I feel like preaching today, or I feel like the people are going to receive that. No, none of that comes into our mind because we must bring the word of God, no matter what, in season and out of season. Because the word of God is not always popular, even with His people. Amen. And so our job is to be consistent and, and, and run through that muck and say it is the power of God as He works through the grace of God through His Word is what He's going to do in order to grow His people. And so we must be consistent in that, that He knows what He's doing. We also must handle God's Word appreciatively. Thankful for such a privilege. How in the world am I able to stand up here before you? I have no idea. It blows my mind every week when I get this opportunity to stand before you. Why He lets me do this? All we can be is thankful. We must also handle God's Word passionately. Caring for the people you speak to. We're not like Jonah who walks into Nineveh and says, Repent or you're going to die. And then goes and flops down hoping to see the, the wrath of God poured down on them. That's not what we're about, right? We preach passionately because we know that the people of God need the Word of God as their diet. That's what you need week in and week out. And we know I love you and I know that's what you need. And so we're, we're all, all of your pastors are here to stand before you to preach to you the Word of God because that is what He's going to take to grow you and to become more Christ-like. And that's what you want. And so we must be passionate about it. We, must, we, cannot, we cannot make excuses for it. We cannot just turn away from it and come up with all these schemes of man to, to attract crowds. We know that the only thing that I have that's going to mean anything is the Word of God. And if I set that aside, then we might as well go to the river on Sunday morning. Because that is the diet that we all need. That is the food that we must eat every day. We also must handle God's Word sincerely. As I read a while ago, we're not peddlers of God's Word. You know, I, I don't have my own version of it or, or I tweak it a little bit and make it into what I like. You know, it's not, it's not part God and part me. It is the Word of God, and I'm not here to peddle anything to you. I'm here to sincerely bring you the revealed Word of God as, as He has given it to His church. And in His wisdom, He knows everything that we need for life and godliness is in, is in, in these pages. And so we must sincerely deliver the Word of God and handle it. And then finally, we must handle God's Word soberly. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That's a sobering thought. How that, and that's just not just an admonition to be scared as a, as, as a teacher of God's Word, that, just, that goes to show you how sacred these words are. Anytime anybody steps up and opens this book, it is a sacred moment. It's a sobering moment because we are bringing the very words of God Himself to His people. And so that's what I believe. That's just a... A, a smattering of what the Bible talks about of what it means to be faithful as a minister of the gospel, to bring, to be faithful in stewarding the mysteries of God. 
that we handle God's Word accurately and rightly and we bring it in season and out of season. So this is how a minister should be measured. Faithfulness and trustworthiness. You know, and in, in, in our day, and this has probably been true of any day, we have all kinds of ways to measure ministers, don't we? Does he have a good personality? Is he an eloquent speaker? Is he innovative? Is he a visionary? How many degrees does he have? How many letters behind his name? How many baptisms did he have this year or last year? How many members are in his church? How many ministries does he have to provide things for people? And all of those things are great, right? Nothing I said in that list is bad. But that is not what the Bible says how you should judge the minister of the gospel. It is whether or not he is being faithful to the Word of God. That is his main task. He is involved in all of these things. He is wanting, I am wanting to become more of a personal, personable to you. I want my personality to become better. I want to become a elo- more eloquent speaker. I want to become more innovative. I want to become more of a visionary. I would like to have a degree or two or whatever, <laughs> or more education. I love to see people baptized because I know God's working in a church. He's working in people's lives. I love to have members of the church. I want to have more people under, the, under, these, under this roof to hear the teaching of the Word of God week in and week out. And I want to have ministries because those are the, where the life of the church is, being, is working. But those things are secondary compared to this here. How we handle the Word of God and what we do with the Word of God. And so that is what Paul is saying here. This is what you must, how you must judge me. Am I being faithful to proclaim to you the Word of God? And so that's how, he must, that's how you must judge them. Then in verses 3 and 4, Paul begins to give instruction on how ministers, how should ministers receive this critical judgment. You know, because Paul was taking it on the chin, and so he's, he's given instructions for himself and for all ministers everywhere of all time how you should handle, how you should look at critical judgment. In verses 3 and 4, he says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact... I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Something uh, that is very clear in these verses, and you see it throughout the rest of this book, and and especially in 2 Corinthians, is is that Paul was being judged by this church. Paul was being critically judged by this church. And so what he's beginning to say is that Whose judgment then should the minister be most concerned about? I mean, it was happening. It was not desirable, but it was there. Paul says it is a small thing, though. He's not really concerned about it. He's not really concerned about it. But he even broadens it beyond that because he's not, it's not that he's just not concerned about it or he's saying that it's a small thing that the people were judging him. He broadens it out even further and says, it's even a small thing that I would be judged by any human court. What that literally means is any human day or any human day in court. And so what Paul is saying is he's looking out upon that future day and he goes into that in verse 5, in that future day when God himself will judge all of his people 
He's saying compared to that, any human day, any human court, any court of man is nothing. It is not, it is not even compared to that. And so he, he doesn't even concern himself with that or with the, the people of the church. Paul even goes so far as to say that he's not even concerned with his own judgment. He is not saying that he doesn't examine himself to see if he's indeed wrong or maybe he's in sin. But he is saying that his conscience is clear, but he doesn't even completely trust that. And so what, is he, what, what do we do with that? Well, we see that he's not trusting or he's saying it's a small thing to be condemned or criticized or critically judged by the church. It's a small thing to be critically judged by a human court or any human day. And it's even a small thing that he even judge himself. And so what is Paul doing here? Is he, is he acting arrogantly? No, I don't think he is. The reason why Paul is not really concerned with the judgment of these three particular places is that when you really boil it all down, all human judgment about service to Christ is really insufficient. Any human idea or or judgment about service is insufficient. Why? Because it's inadequate. There is only one judgment he can be concerned about is the Lord. And so why is it really inadequate? Think about it. Think about it this way. If you've been entrusted with a work by someone else, whose judgment of your work really matters? It's the person who entrusted you with the work, right? Let's say somebody entrusted, let's say Dr. Hamby entrusted me to run his business for a week. He would never do that, but let's just say for the sake of argument, he did. He was going out of, on a vacation. He entrusted me to run his business for a week. Well, would it matter if all of you came to me and said, hey, you, you're doing a great job for Dr. Hamby. His business is running good. You're doing a great job stewarding his business. But yet he comes back and sees his business is in shambles, and he says, man, you did a terrible job. Whose judgment matters? His, right? Because it's his business. He entrusted me to run that business. Or to take it the other way, if, if everybody says, man, you're doing a terrible job, and then I even condemn myself and say, you know what, I should have never done this. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm messing this up. But he comes back and says, hey, man, thanks. You, you did a great job all week for me. Then whose judgment matters? His, because he, it is his business. He's the one who's called on me. He's entrusted me to work there, to, do, to oversee his affairs. And so what Paul is saying here is not, he's, is not arrogance. He's not being arrogant to where he's saying, I'm above you, you can never criticize me. He's not being independent where he says, listen, it's just me and Jesus, I could care less what you think about me. He's not being indifferent as if he could never be actually involved with these things or actually be a failure because he does examine himself. It's not any of that. It's really logical in light of what's really going to happen one day and who their master really is. That's the key. What is only going to matter is God's judgment because He can see into the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and that's where it's at. That's why we say that human beings are inadequate to make, to make right judgments all the time or, or complete sufficient judgments because we cannot see into the inner workings of the heart. We do not so, know the intents and motives of the heart.
And so we have to be careful and see that how do we, how do we look at these things. And so Paul is saying that, look, I'm not disregarding that and saying, okay, I will never listen to anybody else. But as I am weighing my ministry before you, as he stands before this church as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and as he's receiving all of this critical judgment, he's saying, I must take that in, but I must weigh that also in the balance of God himself. And he's the actual household. He's the, he's the owner of the household, and so I must answer to him and him alone. And so that's how Paul is dealing with these criticisms. And then finally in verse 5, he's actually given instruction to the church on how they should view these critical judgments of, its, of Paul himself and as ministers. He says, and this is, a, this is really the application, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And so the first thing he's telling this church is really stop it. Stop doing this. Stop making these critical judgments. He's not saying that the church has no right or has not been given a responsibility by God to actually judge things and matters because He does. Just in chapter 5, we're going to be getting to in a few weeks, He's telling them to judge sin within their midst. He's, He's actually scolding the church because they were not judging sin in their midst. And then in chapter 6, He's... He's telling them and instructing them that they, they should be judging matters amongst themselves, civil matters. Matters of disagreement and, and conflict should be judged amongst themselves. And so he's not saying here that, we, that the church should never make judgments about his, their ministers. But he is saying that you've got to stop engaging in the type of judgment that they've been involved in. The type of critical judgment that is really not centered in the requirements that he was laying out earlier. Matters which, you, which he says that you are not adequate or sufficient to judge. Because really and truly, a true judgment must be, made, must be based on what you... It, true judgment based on what you do not know. Judgment can't be based on what you don't see. And judgment based on the intentions of the heart. This is what really you must be looking at because we, we can't do that, right? We don't know the true intentions of someone's heart. And so we have to be careful how we make those judgments. But the Lord does. And that's what Paul's trying to get at. That's the gem here. That's the the thing he's trying to teach them is that the Lord of the church, the one that we all belong to, He is the one who is sufficient to make these right judgments. He is the one who who, who, who can make these things right. But notice at the very end he says, Whenever he's talking about there's going to come a day, the Lord is going to come and he's going to make, to bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. When we read that, what do you, what do you automatically think about? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, honestly, you think that's probably a bad thing, right? He's going to come disclose the purposes of the heart. But I don't think that's really what he's talking about here because he goes on to say, he says, He says, do not make these judgments before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So this is not a negative judgment. This is a positive judgment. This is a positive thing. And so what he's telling them here is that, look, you might have some things against me, but it is God is the one who's going to either condemn me or commend me. 
but he doesn't even mention condemnation here. He says when God comes back, he's going to expose the the purposes of the heart in each person. And that's what he's ultimately going to be judged on. But also, he's going to be commended by God. And so I think what's happening, what was happening in this church, and this is probably true of any church, is that they were probably considering all of Paul's negative attributes as they perceived them. And they were ignoring the positive traits that he had. And And he had them. But they were choosing to focus on the negative, And they ignored the positive. How often do we look at people not thinking of what is worthy of commendation, but only on that which we think is worthy of condemnation? I think we're guilty of that. All of us at some point in time. We focus on the negative. We see, I have this against that person. They don't do this right or they don't do that right. But there are some things that are right about them, but I'm going to choose to ignore them because these other things are more, are more important to me because I have a condemning heart. I have a negative outlook, a negative heart. And Paul is saying here is that leave it to the sufficient judge to make those judgments because he's going to, he's going to bring to light those things that are hidden in darkness. And that, you know, usually when we see that talking about things hidden in darkness, we think about sin, but that's really not what it's talking about here because he says we're going to receive commendation from God based on those things hidden in darkness. The things that are hidden in darkness are what? The intentions and motives of the heart. And so we have to be very, very careful when we make these judgments of people, whether it be ministers or anybody, that you be careful and give, give way to, to, to let them exp- to, to fully understand the motives of their heart and not be a condemner but a commender as God is doing here. So we always have to be careful how we form our judgments and make our, our understandings of things because... We don't have sufficient information to make those types of judgments. Now, we must make judgments from time to time. But we must do it with great humility and great caution because we don't have all the information and only God does, and He is the master of the church. That's the main point here today. It is God Himself who is the master of the household. Christ Jesus is the head of the church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's His it's his household. He's the one who's working through it and building it. And so we have to leave it to him. And so how should ministers be regarded as servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries? What is the requirement of a minister? That he be trustworthy and faithful with those mysteries, with the revelation of God to the church. How should he view critical judgment? It should not be his ultimate concern. He's not even content with his own judgment because it's inadequate. And how should the church view critical judgments? We should stop them and be very careful with them because and realize that the Lord will do that one day and He will do it perfectly. He will open the intentions of the heart and lay them before us and it will be done perfectly and lovingly in in a commending way. And in... Take note of the fact, the last sentence of that verse, then each one will receive his commendation from God. He's not just talking about ministers there. He's talking about everybody. God is going to expose everything for everybody. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, right? And then we're going to see what we've been building on, whether it's gold, silver, or it's been wood, hay, and stubble. The good will stay, the bad will burn. 
And so we must know that every, every, that every person is heading towards that judgment. And it's a judgment of commendation. It's not a negative thing. We look forward to it. And so that begs the question, should a church never pass critical judgment against one of its ministers? I mean, should we just say, well, he's a minister and I, I can never speak to him. I'll just have to leave it to God on the end day and maybe things will work out. Well, it's not quite that clear. It's not quite that cut and dry. But as I see it, there are two things in the Scriptures that really call, call, command a judgment against one of its ministers. The first is whether or not they are teaching false doctrine. Romans chapter 16, verse 17 says, and this is just one of many you could go to, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. God is serious about the truth of His Word. And if a man of God is standing up and bringing the Word of God in, an, in a false manner, then you must reject that. You must pass that critical judgment. And the other thing we see in the Scriptures are when they are in unrepentant sin. When a pastor or a minister is in unrepentant sin. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20 says, well, let's go back to verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And so clearly I think we see the New Testament laying out is that whenever a, a minister is bringing the truth in a false manner, when he's teaching false doctrine or he's an open, unrepentant sin, the church is called to rebuke him. But otherwise, what is, he called, what is the church called to do? Be very patient and be very careful. And be very supportive because the, the ministers of the gospel are given to the church as servants to the church. We've covered that very clearly. Because in verse 20, 22 and 23 of chapter 3, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future... All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. And so we see that Paul was given to this church as a gift to them. And they were not understanding that correctly. And so we are given to the church to serve the household of God. But we are given it to serve it on behalf of the Master, not to serve the household of God according to whatever whims they may have. It is simply to be there as a servant and a steward of the mysteries of God and that alone. And that is what we are called to do. And I don't want to close by looking at a couple of sections of Scripture that will kind of balance all this out for us because we need to know how to relate to one another. You need to know how to relate to me and to Pastor Nick and Pastor Russ, and I need to know how I need to relate to you. So let's go to First uh, Peter chapter 5 for a minute. I'm going to look at verses 1 through 8. Here's um, Peter's given instructions to his fellow elders in, ver in the first part of this section. He says, So I exhort the elders among you 
as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's, that's a parallel verse to what we've been looking at. When the chief shepherd appears, he's the one who's going to bring the commendation. But in the meantime, what are you to do? Shepherd the flock among you, exercising oversight. There's that, that stewardship, exercising oversight, among, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge. This is not a dictatorship. We are not called to be dictators to the church. We are called to be shepherds to the church, that gentle shepherd to the sheep. So we must be very careful that we don't become arrogant and conceited in our service to the church. And it's always a constant prayer of mine that I'm not like that. And, I, and if I am, I want you to straighten me out on that. I want you to come to me and tell me. But then he also has instructions for the church in that same section. He says in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You know, a lot of times we wrestle that last verse out of there and we want to apply that just as a general statement, which is true. But it's in the context of arrogance and a lack of humility that that it says that the, the devil is out there like a roaring lion seeking to pounce on you. It is the arrogant and proud that he is... Because why why is it the arrogant and proud that he's prowling on like a lion? Because who does the lion actually go after when he's out there hunting? The, the herd or the guy who's out... Or the little deer that wants to wander off by himself? It's that one, right? That's the one he goes after. And what does pride and arrogance do to us? It elevates, our, it elevates us, uh, us in our own mind and we're out there doing our things our way and we're away from the flock. We've drifted off on our own. And that's where the devil is ready to pounce against pride and arrogance. And so the, the, the antidote to that is humility. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Submit to your elders. Submit to them because they, watch, they, they, they give watch over your souls. And then I'm going to also read Hebrews 13, 17. You don't have to turn there. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's a scary thought for me, that I'm going to have to stand before God one day and give an account for those that I've had oversight over. But it's also a joyful thought too, because I have the privilege to do that. But he says, Obey and submit to them. But here's the instruction to the church. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. When the ministers of the gospel, when the pastors of churches are depressed and they're having a hard time overseeing their church because their church are passing critical judgments on them, they're not walking with them, they're not being patient with them, they're not loving them, we're groaning under that weight, You're actually cutting your head off when you're doing that, church. 
because it would be of no advantage to you because we are the ones who are called to steward the mysteries of God to you. And we must bring that to you. And that is what we're going to be trying to faithfully do. But we must be able to do it with joy. And it is a joy. But sometimes it can be a groaning thing to do. Not actually bringing the Scriptures, but the actual way that's worked out. It can be difficult. And so our instruction is is that what is, what, is the, what is the word we walk away with today for me and how I'll apply this and for you? It's humility to one another. Humility and love towards one another. Patience, humility, and love. I'm going to disappoint you. I have already disappointed you. Nick and Russ are going to disappoint you. And so the key is, are you going to love us in the midst of that and help us to learn from our mistakes and grow to become better stewards of the mysteries of God? Or are you not? And we must be walking in humility towards you, not domineering over you, but loving you and being patient with you. And so that is our charge. That is, that is our goal, to be doing that, to be walking in humility amongst one another. Because what is the one, one thing it says about love in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, which we're going to get to, I don't know when, several months later from now. Love endures all things. True biblical love from God endures all things. It endures heartache. It endures disappointment. And that's, that's relevant for all of us, whether it be in our marriages or, or in parenting or in the church, or in our relationships at work, love endures all things. Humility helps us to love endure all things. And so that's what we're here to do. That's what Paul is trying to get, get straight with this church because he loves them dearly. Haven't you not seen that in the early parts? of the, Throughout this whole, we've been looking at these first three chapters, he loved them dearly. They were attacking him severely, and he loved them. And so he knew that the best thing for them is to combat that with the truth. He's not getting on his high horse and say, you, you little Corinthians, I'm not interested. It's a small thing. I don't want to listen to you. You know, you can, you, can, you can just get over it. No. He's walking in hum, hum, humility before them, knowing that the only way things are going to become right is if everybody's walking in their role correctly. Pastors are doing what pastors are called to do. Deacons are doing what deacons are called to do. And members are doing what they're called to do. And we're all doing that together with the same goal in mind to glorify God, not to exalt ourselves. And so humility and love and understanding that each of us will receive His commendation from God. And that's all we should be focused on, right? that we would receive that commendation from God. And it's coming on that day. And so we want to make sure that there's a lot of gold and silver there and not much hay, wood, and straw, right? We want to be serving God with all that we have and loving one another in the midst of that, knowing that we're going to be having many opportunities to do that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You so much, God, that You have... Um, You've given us rich instruction from Paul and from and Lord as we as we seek to be a vital New Testament church, Lord, we all must grow in our humility and love towards one another. And I ask God that you would help me to grow in humility and love towards these brothers and sisters in this church and in this community.
And I pray, God, that you would uh, convict me when I don't, when I stray into pride and arrogance. Well, God, that you would bring others to convict me in your word as well. And Lord, now we th- as we come to the end of this worship service, Lord, we ask that you would be pleased with all that we've done today, God, that you would send us forth into this community this week to be agents of love to this community and that you would use us to draw people to yourself. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.